Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Evan Dolly, an associate professor of history at Goucher College, about his new book, Becoming Taiwanese, Ethnogenesis in a Colonial City, 1880s to 1950s. In this podcast, he describes the beginnings of this project as a dissertation, He then goes into the multiple ways in which Taiwanese interacted with Japanese colonizers and then the Chinese ROC leadership in the 1940s and 50s. Through encounters involving various social organizations, religions, and social work, Dolly examines the practices of local elites and traces the creation of Taiwanese identity in the northern port city of Jilong. Please enjoy. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Evan Dolly about his new book, Becoming Taiwanese, Ethnogenesis in a Colonial City, 1880s to 1950s. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lori. It's good to be here. Uh, Could you start us off just by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study uh, Geelong, the topic of your book? Sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, currently I'm a associate, just recently promoted associate professor of history at Goucher College um, and uh, got to this topic, now jumping back quite a number of years, um, in a somewhat indirect way or unexpected way, I guess. Uh, I mean, the, the book was, as is often the case, originally my dissertation. Um, so I was once upon a time uh, a graduate student looking for a dissertation topic. Um, and I went out with a pretty open-ended sense of what I wanted to work on. Um, I knew that I was interested in studying uh, relations between China and Japan um, during the first decades of the 20th century. Um, I was focused on the Republican era of Chinese history, and um, uh, my sense was that the relationship with Japan was perhaps far and away uh, the most influential bilateral relationship for um, you know the decline of the Qing Dynasty and 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 the rise of the Republic um, in the early context within the, which the Republic developed. Um, so I was interested in, in in China and Japan, but I was also interested in looking uh, not at governmental relations, but at at relations between individuals or groups of people. Um, and so Taiwan sort of rose up in my mind as a good place to to look. Uh, because, of course, it had this history of movement from um, Qing to Japan uh, and then to the Republic of China. And I figured, you know, there'd be rich context for uh, rich opportunities for, for, for looking at relations between Chinese and Japanese in that colonial context. Um, but so that's pretty open ended. <laughs> um, uh, that's really as far as I had gotten. Um, Mostly, as far as I've gotten, there's there's one piece that I'll add in in um, in a few minutes. Uh, but I went to Taiwan um, looking for a topic, 
Uh, and I guess I was interested in that, um, or I was interested in Taiwan in particular, because I had previously spent uh, a summer studying in Taiwan. Um, and uh, when I was stu- a student at what was then the inter-university program, um, now ICLP at, uh, at, at National Taiwan University, um, there was a group of us who were walking around doing, you know, weekends, we would, we would hike or we'd do tours of, of Taipei. And, and one day, um, one of the members of that group, um, uh, uh, professor of religion named Bill Powell, um, were sort of drifted behind us and he started talking to this old gentleman on the street. And, uh, I didn't really pick up what they were speaking because I just knew that I didn't recognize it. And he came over and I asked, well, what, what were you speaking? And he said, oh, we were talking in Japanese to each other. Um, and he explained that a lot of uh, elderly residents of Taiwan preferred speaking Japanese to, to Chinese. And that sort of stuck with me. So I was interested in this sort of history of, or, or in understanding, well, why is it that this whole generation of Taiwanese uh, was more um, comfortable in Japanese than in, in, in Chinese, Mandarin? So those, that's sort of the background uh, before I went off to, to find a topic. Um, and I went, you know, as a young graduate student uh, to find a, a subject that would allow me to, to sort of explore these issues um, and was having dinner one night with uh, a Taiwanese scholar named Lin Manhong, um, scholar of Taiwan and of Qing China. Uh, and I mentioned my interest in looking at relations between uh, Chinese and Japanese on the, the non-governmental level. And she pointed me towards Geelong um, because she pointed out that during the colonial period or the Japanese colonial period, there was a very large percentage of Japanese settlers. Uh, and I later found it was about 25 or 30 percent, depending upon the year. Um, and that struck me as you know, really uh, a good setting to try um, and examine relations between the two uh, population groups. Um, so I went in. That's how I went in, just sort of, well, what happened when these different groups of people interacted with each other? I, I was not initially um, expecting to study ethnogenesis, um, as, the, as is in the title of the book. Uh, I wasn't even necessarily originally expecting to study identity. Um, those things emerged as I got deeper and deeper into the research and tried to figure out, well, what all this information um, that I located, what it all meant. And maybe you could uh, tell us just briefly about uh, what kinds of information, what kinds of sources did you originally uh, look at for this project? Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so as I got going, um, right, the, the first research was just a, a very, um, it was a, a summer long foray to try to figure out what is a viable topic. Um, and, and in that summer, I was starting to, what was, I was looking through um, I mean, I was actually just searching, uh, once I started getting interested in Geelong, I just started searching for um, uh, materials um, that were at Academia Sinica or at what was then the Taiwan branch of the National Central Library, now the National Taiwan Library, um, and also looking at, at um, the National, at uh, the Taiwan University Library collection, just for things published about Geelong. Um and or published in Geelong. And I just started to come across um, lots of local histories uh, that residents of Geelong had written. Some of them, you know, um, a couple hundred pages long. Some of them short little pamphlets, you know, more tourist guides to the city or commercial guides to the city um, that 
you know, the, depending upon which, uh, whether it was a, a, a small guide or whether it was a longer local history, um, you know, different quantities and quality, qualities of information about the city, uh, its history, its population, um, its commercial activities, um, its topography and um, urban development and things like that. Um, so I started to find those sorts of materials. Um, I started to find a few materials that were basically organizational reports. Um, in other words, local organizations that had published uh, materials about themselves and their activities. Um, one that leapt out at me from the beginning was uh, an organization called um, the Geelong Public Welfare Society, or the the, uh, the Koekisha, um, or Gongisha, um, that seemed to be filled with a lot of prominent uh, local residents. Um, and so I got interested in in that organization and started to think about, well, what other sorts of organizations were prominent in the city? Um, I started to, uh, what, else, what else was I looking at in the beginning? Um, I'm going back now, sorry, uh, about 18 years. So um, some of these memories wow. are a little dim. Um, I started finding, um, I started to uh, just, you know, looking on the shelves of, of uh, um, what had originally been the Taiwan Governor General's Library, um, I found uh, a print run, a full print run of a journal um, on social work in Taiwan from the ni- late 1920s into the early 1940s, and just started flipping through pages of that. And I was like, oh, gee, there was a lot of social work activity going on in Geelong in the 1930s in particular. So I started leafing through some of those materials. Um, in, in short, it ended up being a lot of different types of materials. Uh, oh, this was also a moment um, when the Governor General's archives had only recently been opened in Taiwan. Um, I think those opened in the late 1990s, and they were becoming digitized uh, at around the time I was starting my dissertation research. Uh, so I was able to get access to those materials as well, um, reports uh, out of the Governor General's office on um, local government in the city, um, on, uh, again, local organizations, um, on local temples as well. And I just started to piece together all of these different types of sources is how the research progressed. Yeah, and I can definitely uh, see how this is reflected in the piece of work you've now produced. Um, so why don't we we dig into some of that? So uh in your first chapter, for instance, you're talking about when the Japanese uh, become interested in Taiwan and Geelong. And I'm, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about why Geelong was of interest to the Japanese when they colonized Taiwan um, and what kinds of modernization efforts were they uh, attempting to carry out there? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a really important place to begin because... Um, Geelong is not currently all that prominent a location in Taiwan. <laughs> um, uh, I think that, I mean, I know that the first summer that I was there, I didn't visit the city. Um, when I was there as a language student, I didn't go up there. Um, and when I started telling people that I was studying Geelong, a lot of them looked at me kind of funny. It was like, why Geelong? It doesn't strike me as all that significant a place. Well, uh, it was for about 60 years. Um, it was a really significant place for about 60 years. And so from the Japanese perspective, uh, I think 
they were looking for a couple of things. One, um, <clears throat> they needed uh, a harbor that they could bring um, the machinery of colonization into and then uh, export the products of colonial uh, development out of. And in the late 1890s, uh, right, the Japanese uh, took over Taiwan in 1895. And at that moment, um, Geelong was actually very well uh, located geographically, right? The harbor points towards Japan. Um, but it was also uh, environmentally um, a good location because at that point, uh, the harbor of Danshui, um, which had been the, the most important harbor in northern Taiwan for a few decades, the, the, the harbor or the river mouth was getting silted up. And it was going to be a tremendous amount of work to sort of clear that out so that ships could come into it. Um, and that harbor also sort of faces uh, faces Fujian. It faces the Chinese mainland, um, and it, the orientation, the geographic orientation uh, of Geelong Harbor was a little more convenient for the Japanese. Um, so they had to undertake a rather large process of uh, port construction, um, which they probably would have had to do in in, in Danshui as well. But Geelong just uh, had the the better topography at that moment, and it had sort of the better um, direction, <laughs> directional orientation uh, to really draw Japan's attention. Um, and it also, I think, gave the early uh, Japanese colonizers a, sort of a, an opportunity to show uh, how capable they were capable they were in developing this territory. Um, right, the the opportunity to really transform. Uh, which what was at that point um, a relatively thinly used harbor into a major uh, port city really, I think, appealed to the early Japanese colonizers um, as a way to, again, demonstrate their, their, their fitness for, for being a colonial power. Mm-hmm. Uh, another uh, interesting thing that you do in this book, particularly in these earlier chapters, is you focus on elites in Geelong. So you focus on, uh, and at this point you're referring to them as Islanders uh, and then also Japanese uh, elites. So I'm wondering if you can tell us why you decided to focus on uh, these elite people in Geelong society um, and what did you find by looking at them? Sure. Uh, Well, there are a couple of reasons. why I went about it this way. Uh, I, part of it is going back to my initial interest in trying to understand or trying to um, examine relations uh, between people who were in 1895 Chinese um, and the Japanese who settled in Taiwan. Uh, I do, as you, as you pointed out, refer to them as islanders. I pick up, um, I pick up that term from the Japanese uh, who colonized the island, um, who referred to these people as um, Huntojin or Bundaoren, um, meaning islanders. Um, or people of the island. Um, so I did pick up that term from from the sources. Uh, so I was initially interested in looking at um, the interactions, and I discovered pretty quickly that it was at you know the elite level of society that it was easiest to trace actual interactions. Um, there were certainly, uh, I think, a, a lot of engagement. Um, that happened between, uh, say, Japanese mine owners and Taiwanese uh, mine workers. Um, but 
it was easier to, to see the actual interactions uh, at the elite level. So that's one of the reasons why I ended up um, looking at, at uh, elites primarily. Um, another reason is that as I began to go through um, the sources in the first few months of the research, uh, first few weeks of the research, a handful of names just kept showing up <laughs> um, in, in uh, organizational reports, in documents submitted to the governor general, uh, governor general's office, um, in newspaper reports uh, about activities or events in, in the city. Um, the same half a dozen or so names just kept reappearing and reappearing and reappearing. Um, and it seemed to me as though, well, th- these must have been real, the real pillars of society, as it were. Um, and since they had their hands in so many things, um, they were probably the best people to really focus on uh, if I wanted to understand relations between um, Taiwanese and Japanese uh, or people who became Taiwanese and Japanese and also really how the city itself was constructed. Mm -hmm. I think this uh, segues pretty well into what I want to ask next, which is um, you've introduced these elites and now your book is moving into the 1920s and 30s. Uh, And so you're looking at what these elites are up to and also um, various identities that are starting to take form uh, in the city. So for for me, it was interesting to look at this this particular chapter I'm talking about because it's it seems to find a moment or some some shared common ground right there's shared civic pride for Geelong but now there's also some tensions between divisions between islanders and and Japanese so um, what kinds of lines are we starting to see or what kinds of divisions are we starting to see uh, beginning in the 1920s and 30s here okay um, yeah because the 1920s and 30s uh, is really when um, things began to pick up uh, in a lot of ways in terms of, of identity formation, I think. Um, so I ended up, um, just to uh, finish up an earlier thought, I ended up with with uh, half a dozen or so figures, three Islanders, three Japanese. Um, that was not a forced thing. I mean, the, those really those six really sort of stood out above all others in the city as, uh, for their prominence. Um, and they were all initially engaged uh, in in um, a, a couple of different projects. One was sort of economic development of the city. Um, a number of them were owners of major businesses. Um, in, in, in mining was the most prominent industry, um, but also fishing um, uh, and mercantile activity and really a number of other um, commercial activities. Um, but that was connected to sort of their devotion to building the city itself. Um, One of the sources that I I came across um, was a a collection of very short essays that was published in, I think, 1918. Um, And these short essays were written by, uh, I don't know, about about a dozen, 12 to 15 um, different individuals in the city, most of them Japanese, but but four or five islanders. Um, and each one of these short essays was someone's program for developing the city. Um, right, so, so published right at the end of World War I when um, the Japanese empire was experiencing a, a real economic boom. And these short essays were all 
sets of ideas on how to take advantage of that economic boom and really make Geelong uh, a much more important location, um, both for Taiwan, uh, but also across East Asia. So one of the things that they were all devoted to was really raising the city's profile um, and promoting the, the economic uh, and, and ultimately social development uh, of the city. Um, so that was, I guess, the, sort of their common interest. This, uh, I describe it as civic boosterism. Um, and that civic boosterism came out uh, in a number of different ways. Um, <clears throat> it came out in their activities with this, this uh, public welfare society, um, which focused on uh, both sort of promoting the city's uh, reputation um, through publishing guides about it, uh, but also developing some, some social structures through uh, projects like um, an employment agency uh, or public housing. Um, so they, they were not just interested, these elites were not just interested uh, in promoting their own businesses. They were in many ways also interested in promoting, um, I guess, a social safety net, if you will, um, in, in, in developing institutions that could support uh, less well-off members of, of society. So those are areas where they, they, they came together, I think, um, whether they were Islanders or whether they're Japanese. But you also asked about mm -hmm. the divisions that began to emerge. Um, those divisions um, emerged in a couple of arenas. Uh, one, um, those divisions had to do with the emergence of a more general Taiwanese consciousness uh, in the 1920s. Um, <clears throat> this was seen, uh, in something that I don't talk a lot about in the book, but, um, which, uh, I think other scholars have looked at, uh, something called the, um, uh, the Taiwanese culture association, um, uh, Taiwan Wenhua Xiaohui, uh, which during the 1920s, um, promoted, uh, a lot of what they called culture lectures, um, that took places in, in cities around Taiwan. It was, the, the association was most prominent in Taichung and Taipei, uh, but it also hosted uh, or activities, um, these cultural lectures in Jilong uh, as well. And these lectures were organized both to um, reform local culture, uh, to modernize it in some ways, right, to introduce um, new concepts of hygiene or new types of, uh, of um wedding ceremonies or funeral ceremonies. Um, but it was also, these lectures were also ways to sort of promote uh, the culture that the islanders had inherited from, from China or that they had brought over with them from China in, in many cases. Uh, and those lectures served as sort of one point of division uh, within the local Geelong society as it, as it was taking shape. Um, and that division around culture reflected um, sort of a larger division uh, between um, or a larger contestation over uh, religion religion within Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the subject of another chapter, so maybe we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it did begin to come out in, in some of these sort of, uh, some of this devotion <clears throat> uh, or, or dedication that, that the islanders displayed uh, towards um, their cultural traditions that they had again inherited or brought over from the uh, from China. Mm -hmm. the, the and it's oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, so so that's uh, so I'm also thinking in terms of the lines of division. Uh, another 
sort of source of division was the Japanese colonial mindset, which was on the one hand, um, transformative and assimilationist, uh, right? This effort to um, make the, the, the islanders Japanese was a part of the, the Japanese project in Taiwan from, uh, from the beginning. And it, it did intensify a little bit in the 1920s. However, there was a contradictory strain to it, <laughs> uh, which was that um, most Japanese settlers and Japanese colonial officials were not really willing to allow the islanders um, to become fully Japanese. Uh, so on the one hand, they sort of isolated aspects of local islander culture um, as being in need of transformation. Uh, but on the other hand, they refused um, or they denied entry uh, to these islanders into um, the sphere of, quote, true Japanese, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a somewhat related question, which was uh, the issue of the Japanese language. Since you brought it up earlier, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on what what roles that really supposed to play at this point. There's Japanese language instruction for children and also for adults. And it seems like the Japanese government is not satisfied with the level of acquisition or ability to comprehend Japanese. So, so what, what are we supposed to make from that? Yeah. Right. So, so, uh, to answer that, let me talk first a little bit about, um, the yeah. colonial education system, which was, you know, brought in, this was going to be the main tool for assimilating the Islanders for, for Japanizing them. Um, but the education system was created with sort of a two-track model, um, uh, one set of schools for the children of Islanders, um, one set of schools for the children of Japanese, um, very definitely separate and unequal, uh, in terms of the quality of resources, um, and the quality of instruction. Um, but in terms of, of, of the, the language question, uh, for a very, for the first couple of decades, instruction um, at the, the schools for the Islander children was carried on mostly actually still in Chinese. Um, they were taught Japanese language classes, uh, or there were classes in Japanese language, but the language of instruction was, was largely still Chinese. Um, and so the process of learning Japanese moved forward very slowly. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there were also um, the, the the newspaper, the main um, island-wide newspaper, the Taiwan uh, Taiwan Nichi Nichi Shinpo or the Taiwan Daily News, um, that had uh, a, a, a Chinese language section in every edition, um, which were often translations of languages. That, uh, sorry, articles that had appeared already in Japanese. But um, the point is that the the Chinese language persisted um, for. A couple of decades in in in, in the schools um, and in other publications uh, around the island, and when the the colonial government um, at the municipal level, the, so the Geelong city government um, and other municipal governments, finally did a survey uh, of Japanese language acquisition in the early 1930s. Um, as you said, they 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 discovered much to their dismay that learning Japanese had proceeded very, very slowly. Um, after almost 40 years of Japanese rule, um, even in a major city like Geelong, only about 30% of the islander population was proficient in Japanese. 
And that was was really quite uh, disheartening, I think, for um, the Japanese colonizers who had seen language as one of the main ways to promote uh, a process of Japanization. Mm, right. And thereafter, they decided to really accelerate this this process of teaching Japanese. Um, uh, they started to um, issue much more ambitious plans for, for promoting Japanese language um, in schools, in ending uh, instruction in Japanese, in, sorry, ending instruction in Chinese, um, and ending uh, by the by 1936-37, ending um, publications in Chinese uh, and, and and mechanisms like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Um, <laughs> I think. We... And oh, ultimately, please, sorry, please. let me just uh, quickly. Ultimately, they were very successful uh, by the so. Um, the Japanese language instruction really began to ramp up in the mid 1930s, uh, when, as I said, the uh, level of um, proficiency in Geelong was mm. 30, 35 percent. But by 1945, it was 70 or 80 percent at least. Um, so once they they they, they set, the Japanese set their minds to it, they they did actually teach Japanese pretty su- uh, successfully. Which accounts for uh, the experience you had when you were over there as a, a student. Yeah. 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 Yes, right. So this whole one, it's one of the reasons anyway, right? This whole generation, um, their uh, first language, maybe first, second language um, was Japanese. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, so I, I'd like us to turn to one of your next chapters. Uh, when you start to look at different uh, types of programs uh, or organizations is a better word that local elites uh, start to create. So you you briefly touched upon these. You mentioned these things like uh, the Geelong Public Welfare Society, the Geelong Customs Assimilation Association, um, even credit unions. Uh, you've discovered that these ha- all had roles in delineating identities in Geelong. Um, uh, so I'm wondering if maybe you could talk about that a little bit or maybe pick one of these uh, types of organizations and walk us through it. Sure. Um, so one of the reasons that I focused on on organizations um, is that they helped to sort of def- um, they help they, they they were settings within which people could interact, um, but they also helped to define a group. Um, to put it somewhat simplistically, I guess. Um, I think to explain what I mean, let me talk a little bit more specifically about who is in these different groups. Um, so the Public Welfare Society, uh, to start there, um, this was a group that was mixed membership. Um, it was predominantly Japanese, but there were from the very beginning uh, a handful and then by the mid-1930s when the organization, by 1936-37 when the organization um, was disbanded, uh, um, 12 to 15 islanders who were members. Um, They were never uh, on the executive committee of the organization, but they were always a part of the organization. So this was um, an association that really straddled uh, the islander-Japanese divide. and it devoted itself to um, the civic boosterism and and sort of developing a sense of a common Geelong identity. Uh, but it was not the only really prominent organization. Um, the one that I want to talk about more is this: the second one you mentioned, the Customs Assimilation Association. 
Um, because that, I think, really helped to shape uh, what became Taiwanese society uh, in Geelong <clears throat> and by extension to similar organizations uh, in other parts of the island, uh, really across Taiwan more generally. So the Customs and Assimilation Association um, was created by uh, a couple of local elites um, uh, in the mid-19-teens. Um, the leaders at the beginning were uh, um, a, leading, or what, a, a mining magnate named Yen Yunyan um, and a leader uh, of um, sort of local governance and local religious institutions named Xu Zisang. So Xu and Yen were, were the founders. Um, Yen Yunyan died in, in the early 1920s and his brother kind of replaced him. Yen Guanian uh, sort of replaced his elder brother um, in leading this organization. And the organization was, as the name suggests, uh, somewhat focused on transforming um, the culture and the customs of the islanders. Um, the translation that I have uh, of the name, right, so I said I translated it as Customs Assimilation Association. Um, the original name is, is Tong Feng Hui, uh, which might more directly translate or more literally translate as similar customs association. Uh, but I went with the, the, the translation to emphasize that there was this um, focus on, on transforming customs. Um, but it was in many ways more focused on, on modernizing customs than in um, Japanizing those customs, if you will. Uh, the early focus of the association in terms of customs reform was on things like um, foot binding um, or uh, wearing the queue, uh, right? The, the hairstyle inherited um, from, from the Manchu uh, era. Um, or forced upon Chinese males by the Manchus, and which was still practiced in Taiwan into the early 20th century. And so these were things that, that a lot of um, islander elites really across Taiwan saw as remnants of an old era uh, and things that needed to be gotten rid of, um, not to make people of Taiwan more Japanese, but just to make them more modern. Um, so it was really a, a cultural modernization project uh, in a lot of ways. Um, now, this, so this association, it focused on that. Um, it focused on um, transforming marital practices, as I, as I indicated, um, transforming funeral practices. Um, it was not always well-liked <laughs> by other islanders because of these projects, uh, but it was nonetheless um, a really prominent association uh, and um, a really big association. Uh, it was, I think, the largest association in Geelong um, throughout the 1920s and 1930s. It had something like 10 or 12,000 members uh, at one point. Um, now that membership, the size of it, its membership, was in some ways uh, the result of an alliance that it made with the colonial administration. Um, <clears throat> It drew its members from uh, the um, the Baojia system or the Hoko system, right? This local uh, policing association, if you will, that um, the Japanese picked up from uh, the earlier Qing period, and then refined to make a much more to make uh, into a much more effective organization for monitoring uh, local society. 
And so the, the Customs Assimilation Association did have this connection to the uh, colonial government. But what I argue in the book is that it used that connection not actually to implement um, the transformative plans, transformative plans of the uh, colonial government, but actually defend um, the islander community from uh, excessive invasions. Um, and so the Customs and Assimilation Association um, and its main uh, leader, Xu Zisong, they really had to walk uh, a narrow line or a tightrope even um, between uh, sort of accepting some of the modernization programs that were being pushed by the colonial government and the Japanese settlers, but also protecting uh, the islander community. Um, and this protection, this protective function uh, was done in a couple of different ways. One, um, through uh, economic relief uh, activities, um, delivering uh, uh, charitable assistance um, at various points in the year, um, establishing, uh, again, uh, um, much like the Public Welfare Society, establishing um, work training programs or, or employment programs, um, uh, establishing uh, a charitable hospital uh, where people who couldn't afford to go to any of the uh, official public hospitals could actually go to this um, hospital that the, the, the Customs Assimilation Association created in order to get medical care. Um, so they really sort of attempted to um, assist people in need, um, and they only worked with the Islander society, right? They uh, were not um, engaged in helping Japanese residents of Geelong who were in need, and those people certainly existed during the 1930s in particular, after the Great Depression. Uh, but the Customs Assimilation Association, Association was focused just on the Islanders, and that, I think, helped to create a sense of group cohesion among those members of society. Uh, and by creating that sense of cohesion, uh, they really created um, this community that, that became Taiwanese, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, one final sort of way in which uh, Xu Zisang and other elites um, who were associated with this association sort of played what I refer to as a gatekeeper role um, was by negotiating uh, between um, what the colonial government maybe wanted them to do um, and what was acceptable to uh, members of their um, identity group, if you will, or what became their identity group. Um, and the one example that uh, I point to in, in um, one of the chapters of the book uh, is around the burning of ghost mm -hmm. money, um, which is a pretty common practice. Uh, anyone who has, who has been to a temple in Taiwan will have seen this, um, right? There's a big uh, oven in which people throw wads of paper um, in order to, to sort of, as, as part of a devotional act to, to their ancestors, usually. Um, well, a, a big dispute emerged around the burning of ghost money in 1936-37, uh, and the Customs Assimilation Association initially launched a program to ban the practice. Um, they claimed that it was it was uh, outdated, it was backwards, um, and it was also economically wasteful. Well, that actually provoked uh, a lot of resistance from among um, 
the Islander community in Geelong, and the association sort of reconsidered uh, its initial plan and withdrew that plan. And because it received this push from its main uh, supporting community uh, and and pushed back against um, sort of the colonial government's interests in transforming this custom, uh, it helped to preserve that boundary um, around uh, the Taiwanese community as it as it came into existence. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And you spend a whole chapter actually talking just about what happens uh, in terms of religion uh, with the Japanese government and uh, the Taiwanese. So I'm wondering if you could also talk a little bit about that because there is this attempt to uh, enforce, introduce uh, Shintoism or Japanese Buddhism in Taiwan in place of um, traditional beliefs. Yeah. So religion is is uh, one of the, or the chapter on religion, I think, is one of the most important in the book um, in terms of <clears throat> seeing both Japanese efforts to uh, impose their own identities on Taiwan and to transform Taiwan um, through religious transformation uh, or religious um, conversion, I guess, is, is, is a way to describe it, although it's there was definitely proselytizing, uh, so the analogy I think certainly works. Um, so it, it's uh, religion works well from the Japanese side, but it also um, is really important from the Taiwanese side uh, because that becomes a central facet of their their identity, I think, um, or an even more central facet of their identity than it had been prior to Japanese colonization. Um, so from the Japanese side, uh, beginning. Almost immediately, there was this effort to um, establish Shinto shrines uh, across Taiwan. Um, Jilong uh, was a little late, I suppose, in getting um, a Shinto shrine. Right, the, the one in Taipei was established um, by around 19, uh, 1900, 1905. Certainly within the first six or seven years um, of Japanese rule, it was it was it was established, and it was established by the government general. Um, in Jilong, things happened a little more slowly. And they were uh, carried out by Japanese settlers. Um, so Japanese settlers saw this as a way to really sort of impose um, their identity in Taiwan to to transform Taiwan by bringing Shinto uh, to the colony. Um, they also uh, the Japanese settlers also uh, were engaged in. Um, acts of, uh, as I said, missionary acts by, by bringing Buddhism to Taiwan. Um, some of that came out of uh, what was going on in, in the Japanese home islands in the late 19th century and early 20th century when um, after uh, laws guaranteeing religious freedom in Taiwan, sorry, in Japan were instituted uh, by the Meiji government, um, suddenly there was this effort uh, by um, Shinto shrines, by Buddhist temples, and also by Christian churches to, to, to gain adherence. Um, and that sort of religious energy and religious competition in the Japanese home islands spilled over into the colony uh, as there was, uh, where, where there was a fair amount of, of um, missionary zeal uh, to um, find Buddhist converts and to find, uh, and to, to draw people into Shinto. Um, most of that energy from the Japanese side, um, at least among uh, the Buddhist denominations, 
was carried out actually among the Japanese settler community, but they did also make forays uh, into the Japanese, sorry, into the the islander community to try and find <clears throat> more converts uh, among the islanders. Um, and sort of their overall objective was really to transform the sacred space of Taiwan to make Taiwan um, more of a, a Japanese sacred space, um, and to really impose different forms of Japanese belief and practice, uh, religious belief and practice, um, into the island. Um, so that's from the Japanese side. Uh, and that sort of practically was carried out um, through uh, the development of the Jilong Shrine, uh, which expanded through the 19-teens and into the 1930s, um, and through a half dozen or so Buddhist temples that, that were imposed, uh, were established um, in, uh, again, the first few decades. One of the interesting things about the Japanese temples, Japanese Buddhist temples, is that in the early days, uh, several of them um, were established actually within what had been uh, existing temples, um, uh, existing temples to, to either, um, well, usually just to local deities uh, within Taiwan. So they basically reconsecrated um, islanders' temples and transformed them into these Japanese Buddhist temples. That happened in, in six or seven cases, uh, four or five cases in Jilong in, in the first decade or so of Japanese rule until the government general stepped in and said that that practice had to stop. Um, and it seems as though the, the government, government general's motivation was twofold. One, um, they felt that this act of reconsecration was disrupting islander society. Um, it was taking away islanders' temples, and, and that uh, was causing disruption in ways that the government general didn't want to see occur. Um, right? They wanted to promote stability, uh, and this, this reconsecration was promoting instability. The other uh, reason, I think, had to do with um, a motivation to preserve the purity of Japanese Buddhism um, by not uh, by 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 not allowing it to mix with um, religious traditions that were seen as somehow backwards uh, and and impure. Uh, when Japanese looked at um, the religion uh, of the islanders, one of the th ways in which they described it was uh, as sort of an amalgamation of different um, deity cults uh, or an amalgamation of different religious traditions. And um, the Japanese colonial government and the Japanese settlers as well were interested in sort of uh, purifying each religious tradition um, rather than allowing these sort of amalgamations of traditions to, to persist. And so they wanted to prevent... Uh, the Japanese government general stepped in to prevent um, the merger uh, or the pollution, I guess, of Japanese Buddhism by um, native uh, religious mm. traditions. Yeah, there's a lot going on there for sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, so no, no, it's fascinating. Uh, uh, now I'm just trying to think with your, your next chapter, You, the way you framed it is that uh, it's about social work is that it's it plays kind of a similar function as religion does um, the way you set it up as kind of a part of this late colonial attempt to impose Japanese national identity. And then there's this really strong uh, 
Taiwanese reaction to that that says, no, this isn't, we're, we're not doing it the same way. So I, I wondered if you wanted to briefly talk about that as well. Sure, I, I will, uh, absolutely. Um, so what I argue is that sort of by the early 1930s, uh, a Taiwanese ethnic identity had, had come into existence. Um, looking through a number of different factors uh, that I've already talked about, um, the organizations and the, the, the defense of Taiwanese religious space and religious traditions. Um, in the 1930s, uh, as you say, when social work really began to ramp up uh, in Taiwan, it was established, um, systems of social work were established during the 1920s, but they really began to operate at a much higher level in the 1930s. And that was uh, a way in which, um, or from the Japanese perspective, it was a mechanism um, that they could use to uh, more rapidly transform um, the, 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 the islanders or the Taiwanese into Japanese people, right? They could um, eradicate backwards practices. Uh, they could um, impose Japanese ways of doing things, uh, modern, uh, they could impose Japanese standards of hygiene. Um, and uh, they could impose sort of Japanese ways of delivering assistance to people in need, right? Some of these uh, mechanisms, um, such as a system uh, referred to, uh, or referred to as the local welfare commissioners system, um, the Homin Ienkai, uh, uh, the home in Ian would be the local welfare commissioners and the home in Ian Kai would be the local welfare commissioners association. Um, this was a system that was developed in Japan, uh, in Japanese cities in the teens and early twenties, and then imported into Taiwan. And that became a way uh, for Japanese, particularly in the mid and late 1930s to really monitor local society um, and to try and accelerate this process of Japanization. Um, but because a lot of Taiwanese uh, had gotten involved in this system and in other social, well, social work uh, associations, they were again able to sort of push back or to resist um, a lot of the overly transformative uh, or, yeah, overly transformative um, elements. Um, I talked about uh, the, the ghost money incident, uh, as it were, or the ghost money um, uh, eradication attempt. Well, that was actually linked into the social work system as well, um, because uh, local social workers were mobilized um, to help, uh, or there was an effort to mobilize local social workers uh, to help eradicate um, this this practice. Uh, and then other members uh, or other local social workers sort of helped push back and defend the practice, if you will. Um, yeah, so that was another way in which sort of that 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 boundary between um, Taiwanese and Japanese identities was reinforced uh, through that that social work system. Mm. Now, for the last couple chapters of your book, you turn to the earliest years of uh, ROC rule, so 1945 to 55, and I'm wondering if you can. Now turn to those chapters and tell us, you know, how did the rule of the nationalists in these early years compare with the rule of Taiwan under the Japanese? What kinds of um, interactions are we seeing uh, between 
nationalists, these newly arrived Chinese and Taiwanese in Geelong now? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, things really uh, get uh, um, really interesting again after the war. Uh, the war sort of took away a focus on Geelong. Um, there was not really a local focus of activity during the war years. So the war years actually are not that significant in the book. But after the war, um, when Taiwan uh, comes under the uh, sovereignty of the Republic of China um, and the nationalists arrive uh, in, in the island, the new province, um, they arrived with uh, a program that was very similar to um, the one brought by the Japanese colonial regime. Um, and I say similar in the sense that it was motivated by uh, a desire to transform Taiwan um, and to transform the people of Taiwan, uh, and in, to make them, in this case, not Japanese, of course, but to make them Chinese. Um, when uh, the Japanese, uh, sorry, when the, the the Chinese looked at um, the Taiwanese when they arrived in 1945, they saw people who had been essentially tainted by five decades of Japanese control, um, and people who thus needed to be re-sinicized. Um, and so the programs, uh, and so the uh, nationalist government uh, or the government of the Republic of China began to impose uh, a number of re-sinicizing or re-sinicization projects um, that very much resembled what the Japanese had done before, right? They created uh, a new system of schools in which um, Chinese language would be taught um, and Chinese national history would be taught. Uh, and um, the people, the the children, would be sort of transformed into um, Chinese citizens. They also uh, launched projects to um, sort of re uh, recreate the cities of Taiwan. Um, Geelong being one of the main ones that 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 uh, they paid attention to, or they, that they that the nationalists focused on. Um, one of the ways in which the war was really important in that regard is that uh, the aerial bombing campaigns of 1944 and 45 had caused tremendous damage to, um, to Geelong, to Kaohsiung, to Taipei, and to other cities. And so the nationalists sort of took advantage of that uh, to basically inscribe their vision uh, of a modern urban city onto the, the physical geography of Taiwan. Um, and that, again, sort of matched what the Japanese had done earlier. Uh, and so for those reasons, I mean, I, I describe it as essentially a, a neo-colonial process or a project. Um, right, the the, Jap the nationalists um, essentially replaced the Japanese uh, as the new colonizers of Taiwan in many in many regards. Um, the other way in which uh, early Chinese national nationalist Chinese rule really affected Taiwan was in sort of extracting resources. Um, again, in much the way that, that the Japanese regime had done. Um, the nationalist Chinese regime needed to extract resources from Taiwan in order to uh, use those resources to fight the civil war against the communists. <laughs> um, so as resources were pulled out of Taiwan, um, you know, uh, both um, sort of food uh, and, and um, fertilizer, um, Geelong had a cement factory that that was sort of uh, devoted to to producing 
products that 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 could be used uh, in in the conflict against the the communists. Um, these products were taken out of Taiwan, and and the local economy essentially collapsed pretty rapidly mm-hmm. in 1946. Um, and this combination of sort of um, cultural transformation, um, reurbanization, um, and economic decline. Uh, all came to a head in late 1946 and 1947 um, in the somewhat well-known explosion of the 228 incident and the 228 uprising uh, of February, March um, uh, of 1947. Right. And um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about uh, your last chapter at all. We we have a couple minutes if you like, Uh, but uh, in that chapter, you you return to some of so, some familiar themes, social organization, social work, and so on, please. So um, after the, the explosion uh, uh, of the 228 incident and, and its suppression, um, local politics sort of went underground uh, or, or, or politics in general became um, not the main way in which uh, Taiwanese sought to defend their separate identity, right? This This ethnic consciousness that had emerged over the previous five decades. Um, instead, where they sought to defend that identity was in the very arenas in which it had really taken shape uh, over the previous five decades. So um, I look at uh, efforts, um, or I look at, again, the, the, those same arenas of, of, of social organizations, um, religion, uh, and, and social welfare. Um, just to take one example uh, out of all of that, um, one of the uh, actually central topics that, that runs through much of the book is the local Geelong Ghost Festival. Um, today uh, in, in, in Geelong, or today in Taiwan, uh, the Ghost Festival is one of the things for which Geelong is, is most famous. Um, the, the Ghost Festival has become, in the last few decades, very closely identified with, with the city itself. Uh, that identification began during, um, really began during the Japanese period, and then was reinforced in the years, uh, the the first decade or so um, after 1945. Um, and there's uh, one of the, the the moments that I talk about in the book um, is the Ghost Festival of 1948. Um, now the Ghost Festival is is uh, a moment when um, people make offerings to ancestors who can't otherwise be mourned properly. Right, their their bodies have have been lost at sea, um, or uh, they died um, in incidents uh, where either the bodies physically can't be recovered, or it might not be appropriate to mourn them publicly uh, because maybe they died in incidents of conflict, um, or they died. Uh, for reasons where where it might be politically inopportune to to mourn them publicly, so the ghost festival uh, had not been um, it had been prohibited uh, in 1946 um, and 1947 um, for economic reasons and for reasons of sort of rebuilding, uh, focusing on rebuilding the city. But when it came along um, in uh, the late summer of 1948. Um, it turned into one of the biggest examples, um, at least in, in local memory, uh, of the festival, uh, 
perhaps, well, certainly um, from the uh, sort of that general era of history. Um, so the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, that festival really stood out in local in, in reports that I've read uh, written about the city by local residents. And I think, or the way I interpreted that, like the size, the scale of the festival in 1948, is that local residents seized upon it um, as a way to mourn a couple of different groups uh, or to show respect to a couple of different groups of people um, who could not be uh, publicly, publicly mourned in other contexts. So these would have been um, Taiwanese who had fought uh, and died uh, as members of the Japanese imperial forces, right? It would not be politically uh, opportun- not be politically um, possible to, to mourn Japanese soldiers uh, in, in um, post-war Taiwan. Uh, so it was a, a chance to sort of show respect to them. Um, it was also a chance to uh, show respect to people who had been killed in the 228 uprising. Um, so the scale of the, the celebration in 1948, I think, sort of represents uh, an effort by the residents of Jilong to really sort of proclaim themselves um, as not, uh, or, or, or in, in opposition to the imposition uh, of uh, early nationalist rule as it took shape in the suppression of the 228 uprising um, and the beginnings of martial law uh, in 47, 48, and 49. Um, that moment, so that, that, that uh, what, celebration in 1948 didn't immediately draw a response from the nationalist government. Um, they were perhaps a little too distracted with the final stages of the Civil War on the mainland. Um, but in the early 1950s, uh, there's evidence of a pretty um, pronounced effort on the part of the government to control and suppress the ghost festival um, in particular, uh, but also evidence of uh, local Taiwanese in Geelong and other cities holding on to it and continuing to celebrate it um, in as extravagant a manner uh, as they could manage in the face of these these new restrictions. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. Well, Evan, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, so I'm going to wrap things up here. Uh, we like to end the podcast uh, with a, this traditional question, which is to ask, what are you working on right now? Okay. So um, I'm still interested uh, in um, identity formation and in sort of the, the instability of the nation state, uh, if you will. Um, Right, uh, coming out of my focus on ethnic identity in in the first project, I'm I'm still interested in sort of non-national identities or the ways in which national identities are constructed um, and the sort of fissures within them. And the way that I'm going to now approach these interests is actually by looking at uh, relations between the Republic of China government and communities of overseas Chinese in um, Japan. Vietnam, Singapore, and the United States from the 1920s into the 1970s. Um, And this is a a way for me to sort of explore how the Chinese nation state was constructed in um, international and transnational contexts, 
right? How it was constructed uh, in uh, and through overseas Chinese communities, um, both through uh, Republic of China outreach to those communities, but also through China's interactions with other um, national or colonial governments around these overseas Chinese communities that, that existed in, in, within these other, other states or other colonies. Um, so I want to examine sort of this long-term, well, right, yeah, long-term process uh, of creating and really recreating China um, in the 20s, uh, beginning of the 1920s uh, and ending in the early 1970s. Um, because, I mean, I think it, it what, what I've seen a little bit already with some of my preliminary research is that these overseas Chinese were, um, I guess, an important vector through which uh, the Republic of China government was able or, or, or tried to establish its international and its domestic legitimacy. Um, and that legitimacy had to be uh, established certainly in the 20s and 30s, but then reestablished um, in the 40s, 50s, uh, and 60s. Um, so that's that's where I'm heading with, with my future research. Yeah, that sounds like a great transnational project. We'll be looking out for it. Um, oh, okay, so thanks again for being on the show. It's been really great. Well, thank you very much, Laurie, for, for your questions and for giving me the, uh, the opportunity to talk uh, at some length about all of this. <laughs> yeah, no problem. All right, thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks, have a good day. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. See you next time.